Welcome to Teachings in the Air. air, air. podcast with Jerry Oldman, coming to you from Hunkameenam Territory with a podcast series about Indigenous men's health and wellness. We aim to inspire, motivate, and empower Indigenous men to be sound in mind, body, and spirit, because that's what health means. Teachings in the Air with Jerry Oldman. Today's podcast is called Sahilthit, Shut Up and Paddle. <laughs> it's been in my mind for a long time to do this podcast, and I've done it over and over again. You know, because I, 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 like everybody else, I sit and watch what goes on in the world. And I get influenced by influencers, by people on Twitter and Instagram, on the news, you know, and I watch what goes on in regards to politics, to climate change, to environment, you know, the environmental issues, indigenous issues. I've been watching that practically all my life. And I'm reminded, as I was thinking of this podcast, of my cousin, my late cousin, telling me, Jerry, you quit being a worrier now. Be a warrior. He would say that because he'd see me worrying about residential school survivors, see me worrying about children been taken, children unsafe in our communities, worrying about suicide and addictions, and that's when he told me, you quit, you stop that. You be a warrior now, Jerry. So I took those words and I, you know, in a way he's telling me, shut up and paddle. I tell people, you know, in my life, I, I used to be king of the complainers. Complaining about the church, complaining about the government, you know, complaining that, you know, about the theft of land, the theft of children, the theft of language. You know, there was so much that was just justifiably so for me to complain, you know, and, um, and say somebody should do something about this. Then one day I seen the statement and this person was saying somebody should do something, then they realized they're somebody. Today I know I'm somebody, so I'm doing something. And part of that is these podcasts. 
contributing to the process of change in this country, change in the people. And, uh, you know, it gets conflicting and it gets confusing, you know, to what to do. Another one of my teachers was an elder. Seeing how I reacted around um, racism and around people, you know, that wouldn't treat me with respect or not believe in me. And he said to me, Jerry, every time somebody steps on you, if you don't make noise, they're going to keep stepping on you. So I mulled that over. And I realized that I must make respectful noise because the man that told me was so respectful of all humanity, all human beings. So I said, okay, I'll follow my elder. Another one a message of shut up and paddle come from this elder at this uh, morally at this healers gathering. I think it was in 1979, somewhere in there. And I remember I got this little bundle of tobacco in a red cloth. And it says it's an invitation to this healing gathering in Morley, Alberta. And this is your invitation. Please pass it on to someone else. So I passed on that little tobacco bundle to some of my friends and said, hey, it's an invitation to a healing gathering. And, uh, holy cow, just in my own nation, there was quite a few of us that gathered up and went to Morley, Alberta to listen to the healers, to be part of ceremony. Because that was, you know, in a sense, following that prophecy of uh, when uh, about the moon and the, the landing on the moon, that the indigenous people are going to wake up when mother touches grandmother or when the earth touches the moon. That we're going to start to go back to our ceremonies, to our language, to our, you know, to our culture. It's a big um, shut up and paddle message. <laughs> You know, embrace your culture, embrace your heritage, practice it, live it. Anyway, this elder, we're gathered around the fire in Morley, Alberta. And his message to us, because we all smudge and listen to music, traditional hand drum music, before he speaks. And he says, I want all of you to start working with the white people. And we're young activists and, you know, and wanting to be activists. I had already been part of blockades and things, you know, and demonstrations. And in my mind, I'm saying, why, why should I work with white people? I don't want to. I got enough work with my own people. Then he says, um, like he's reading my mind, he says, I'm going to tell you why. He says, because the, the white nations have the gift of movement. They're, they're, they're not afraid to pull up roots and move to another country to move across the ocean. It's been proven over and over again that they, they, they got no problem moving around. 
He says, they even went to the moon. And he points up to the sky. That's a clear indication of their gift of movement. But he says, they're getting reckless with that gift. They're causing harm with that gift. And the reason why I want you to go work with those, those ones is because we as indigenous people have the gift of vision. We could see what happens if we overfish or we overhunt or if we don't take care of the land or each other, that there's going to be harm, there's going to be damage, there's going to be hunger, there's going to be hardship. So we must bring that gift of vision to them. I was thinking those elders already seen what was coming with the climate change and the global warming and attributed it to the gift of movement, of moving without regard, moving without vision, moving without a long-term vision. So that was another message of shut up and paddle. Just don't be a complainer. So as I was coming up to doing this podcast, I'd think about people telling me, I'd tell them about my anger. These are white folks, about my depression, about my fear and anxiety because of what happened to me at residential school and what happened to me as an indigenous person in this country. And they'd say, Jerry, you have a right. It's justifiable that you be that way. And I thought, yes, but I don't like being the way I am. Angry all the time, afraid, depressed. Because that's what happened. That's where I arrived at after the harm. All victims, if they don't get healing, they walk through life angry, depressed, or afraid. And that's not a way to be. Because the indigenous way is not to complain to show huge respect to your fellow human beings, to show respect to everything that keeps you alive, the deer, the moose, the salmon, the winged ones, you know, the ones that crawl, the ones that grow out of the ground, the water, the air, to have respect for that. That's an indigenous way. And I think of it, I would meditate in that word respect. How do I show respect to another human being? One of the answers that come to me was the highest form of respect I can give another human is to listen to them with everything I got. Not to be thinking about my response or thinking that they're wrong or thinking that they're right. Just listen. I started to practice that, and it, it was difficult. Because my mind chatter, you know, my mind talk would want to take over. In that way of life, I was letting my emotions set my path. And when I was angry, it wasn't a good path. It wasn't a healthy path, trail to walk on. You know, so our values were to find solutions, to put our minds together, 
You've probably heard me refer to the famous, world-famous philosopher saying, let's put our minds together to see what we can do for our children, and that was Chief Sitting Bull. Let's put our minds together. It's another message about shut up and paddle. You know, as I, when I, why I became a complainer, why I remained a victim. Because remember, victims, the word victim, actually, I looked up the meaning. It come from the time, and, uh, you know, the, there were people in, around what they now call Israel or the Middle East that they would make sacrifices to the God, sacrifice lambs, animals. And those, those animals were called victims. So I don't want to be a sacrifice to anyone. I discovered that, that I don't want to be a victim. Because victims wrap themselves in a cocoon of negativity, usually. There are times that anger can be righteous anger, and we can go out could say no to abuse, no to oppression in a way that it can bring change. Because we've been saying no for many years as indigenous people. In both ways, some of us go out and blockade, some of us um, write letters, some of us do emails, make phone calls, confront people. And I think of Elijah Harper sitting in the House of Government with his eagle feather saying no. A real good example of someone that's paddling, that has a mission and has an objective and is clear and would not be swayed by anyone who stayed true to the course. So I, I became that victim, because I did not receive healing for what happened to me in the education system, Canadian education system. You know, the, the physical abuse, the mental abuse from adults, the sexual abuse. It was... Uh, I end up being insecure, being angry, being depressed, being afraid, you know. But, it, you know, I wanted to make it clear it wasn't 24-7. There were many beautiful moments in my life, too. As I was evolving from the victimhood, and that's what, of course, would keep me going. Like my grand, my late grandmother talking to me or my elders, role-modeling for me. You know, and I, 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 I could hear don't think you're better than others. Don't you be swearing at people. You know, I'd hear those words, you know, but to absorb them so I reflect them, it took a while. Because in a way, they're telling me to shut up and paddle. Indigenous, it's not indigenous to be a complainer or a whiner. You know? 
I heard those words. There's no room for whiners and complainers here. One of the elders said, we're here to find solutions. We're here to find answers to our own personal problems and the problems of our families and communities. That was a good message for me to hear. Cousin, I think about that word justifiable. It's so true. I've talked about um, when I figured out why we are where we are today. Because we must be honest, many of our people are suffering. You know, from ill health, from mental health, from you know, from depression and anxiety, um, poverty. You know, you just look at uh, government reports and what they call determinants. And we're way above other people in numbers, even though we're a small percent of the population. 40% of the prisons, indigenous, diabetics, suicide, addictions. You know... That's, that's true, apprehensions. But it's because of what happened. And we're not born to be that way as indigenous people. It's all of those happenings, and anyone in the world that would go through those events and live through them would be impacted too. In other parts of the world, when, they, when they've done what they've done to us, they became terrorists. They fought back that way. I watched that, and um, it doesn't seem to end. So when I think in my own mind that that's not the solution. Violence is not the solution. Aggression, because aggression means that you, you're going to push yourself in someone with the intention of causing harm. Whether it be with words, a look, or a fist, or a policy, or a law, that's aggression. I tell people, you know, we can't fight fire with fire. If we do that, everybody gets burnt. Everybody. Kids. Adults, doesn't matter. You know, and uh, I, that's what I go by is my life. Not systemic reviews or things. I do make references to history. But for me to be the victim, until I broke that victimhood, you know, I wasn't paddling. I wasn't part of a solution. In fact, I was part of the problem. So, you know, and I look back, you know, and I tell people I grew up in a house that was small, built by my dad. And people helped him from the family. But built it on his own. And we all slept upstairs underneath the roof. Line of beds, no bedrooms. 
one big room downstairs. There's a kitchen stove and there's a heater stove. Two stoves, two wood stoves. And that's where we lived. And it was an inclusive way of life. And I have no bad memories of it. You know, we were all, uh, we're all part of that family and we all work together. My brothers and I feed the chickens, you know, do the chores, you know, pack wood, pack water, you know, help be part of the family. With those little memories in my little childhood, there was laughter. There was support. There was encouragement. In such a small space. And I, you know, that's where I heard the, the stories. That's where I was given responsibility. And I responded. For some reason, my dad picked me for to be the fire starter in the morning, in the winter time. Because our houses didn't have Tyvek and uh, asbestos stuff to insulate the houses. It was such a small piece of space; it was easier to heat up, I guess. But I know I remember they put newspaper between the shingles and the wall to stop the airflow. So when I think about it, there's no mold there, you know. But anyway, I'd be, you know, the, my dad slept closest to the stair, my dad and my mother. Then my oldest brothers that went down in age, and I was second last. I have one younger brother than me at that time. So I was second last in the line of mattresses and beds. In the morning, you know, my dad was a logger. He was always a worker, working all the time, you know. And I'd hear him early in the morning, Jerry, Spamption. And I'd roll over and cover my head with a blanket. Jerry, Spamption. And I wouldn't move, and he'd say it one more time and change the tone of his voice. <laughs> and I would jump out of bed, run down towards the stairs and down the stairs to the wood heater. There's kingling there and wood to start the fire. I put it all in and I start the fire. And I run back upstairs, go back into my blankets till it warms up. You know, that was a responsibility. And <laughs> it got to be my habit after to wake up early. And I still do. But that was an inclusive lifestyle where we all had something to do. No standing around. When people are working, we had to become involved. Berry picking, canning the food, drying the fish, whatever it was, we all become part of it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a good way of life. When I look, think of that, that was good. Oh, I remember us playing. And my parents would go shopping somewhere and they'd get my granny or my uncle to babysit us. 
And that was storytelling time, you know, and it was special snack time in the evening or whatever. That was good. So when I first got introduced to a life where inclusivity wasn't there, there was an education system, the Canadian education system. It's the first time I experienced violence inflicted myself and watched it happening around me. It wasn't good to see and it wasn't good to feel. And I started to internalize the messages that were coming through the air to me. Stupid Indian, crazy Indian, oh, those are drunken Indians, you know, they're lazy Indians. I'd hear these, this terminology in the air. And as a youngster, you know, we were, my granny taught me later, we absorb everything like a sponge. I absorbed those messages and became insecure, wondering if I'm a stupid Indian. And I, you know, that racism is when people treat another group with contempt and they discriminate and refuse a service or they stereotype, they say you're all the same. That's what racism's about. So I felt the cut of racism as a child in school. I didn't really mingle with white people until I was in grade 10. I was in a residential school and we, everybody used to go there till grade 12 and for some reason they started to say, okay, we're going to send them to public schools now but they'll still live in a residential school. And I sent to St. Anne's Academy in Kamloops. That's the first time I integrated. And <laughs> I think about that, wow. 15, 16 years just staying with indigenous people specifically. So, you know, the ones that I was encountering were violent white people, violent Christians, evil. Some of them were evil. There's no other way to say it than that they're evil, to treat children the way they treated them, treated us, I should say. So that racist that image that was created for indigenous people. I didn't know until, you know, in the last four or five years that um, they created an image for us. I, I, I was aware of it, but I put the words together in my mind. They, cre we, they created an image for us and it was inferior, that we cannot, that we're stupid, we're lazy. You know, that, and people actually believed this, and they lived it too. That's about the racism. Then the religion. You know, I became a, a victim. And racism, I was a victim in religion. You know, the, I'd hear them talk about Jesus is the only way, so there's no room for indigenous ways. You know, as I grow up and as I 
advanced in years, and I'd, sometimes I'd shake my head and I'd think of how effective they were at cultural genocide. In my community as a boy and as a young man, I didn't hear a hand drum. I didn't hear music. I didn't see a ceremony. It was all Roman Catholicism. And it's a, and it's life is like that because we see it today. It's weird sometimes because we know there's somebody or a group that's doing something wrong, but they're allowed to carry on. There were pedophiles in those Christian dominations, denominations that were targeting indigenous people, children. And people knew that for a long time and it didn't stop. So that's a justifiable thing for me to complain about, to let people know about. And I have. I was uh, at a meeting with these different denominations we're talking about residential school court cases Anglicans United Catholic I remember the Anglican member at that time said that our diocese is going to go bankrupt because of these court cases these civil court cases where in a talking circle, I wanted to respond right away, but I couldn't because I have to wait for the talking stick to get to me. And then a Catholic representative spoke, and he says, We'd, the Catholic Church wants you to know we had nothing to do with um, eradicating their culture, nothing. I was sitting there, and I was biting my tongue. I was angry. When it got to my turn to talk, I said, first off, you know, you have a choice. I looked at all of them. You can be morally bankrupt or financially bankrupt. You choose. I said, but if, if Jesus came down today, I'm pretty sure he would tell you to fix it. And I said, in regards to loss of culture, my mother told me about her experience in a Catholic residential school where the nuns, when she was a little girl, six years old, speaking Stetlium, would be strapped for speaking her language, her first language. And all the girls were treated as such. She told me that they would be talking in their language as little girls, and a nun would come in and catch them and would sprinkle uncooked rice on the floor and make them kneel on it and hold Bibles out, one in each hand with their hands stretched out. And if their hand went down, they'd get a strap. My late mother said that, yeah, there were some little girls just refused to stop speaking their language. They get strapped, they get whipped. She said even they went so far as to shave their heads. And even then they would, um, if they didn't stop, they'd stick a needle in their tongue. And I was listening to my mom and I was watching her. I said, oh my God. 
I said, oh, because as I was listening to my late mother, I was thinking about my resentment to my mother for not teaching us a language. And my father, my late father. And I, my mind, I said, I forgive you. You were protecting me. So that's a reason for me to complain. Justifiable. Then there's the reservations. You know, I grew up in a reservation. I didn't think there was anything wrong, you know, until I grew up and started to leave the reserve and hear other people talk. and them. Because, I, you know, they're minimum security prisons. That's how they started out. I learned that. I listened to my father and him talk about the Indian agent and the power that the Indian agent had. He told me about the time the Indian agent came with relief money, the first welfare system. And he says the men were working and stuff, you know, hunting and gardening and doing whatever to keep alive. When he came and he talked to them, they chased him off, the, off our community and said, we make our own living. We get our food with our own two hands. But they kept coming back with that money became welfare money. I say it's minimum security because that's where we were. And because of the racism, a lot of us weren't getting jobs out in the white world. Another justifiable thing to complain about. I tell people today Canada is the second largest land-based country in the world and Indian reservations are 0.05% of the land mass. That's shocking. Then there's the residential schools. You know, I've mentioned that already. Another justifiable reason to complain, to do some, you know, to talk it. Then there was uh, another trauma or another justifiable reason for us not to trust or to be angry, to be afraid, to be depressed, was RCM police. My grandfather said to the priest when he come to the house to take my mom to residential school, my grandfather said no. Next day, the priest shows up with an Indian agent and an RCMP officer. Indian agent and the priest take my mom to a residential school and they take my grandpa to jail for six months. That's shocking image there. And often, I forgot about my poor grandmother who not only lost her daughter or her children to residential school, but her husband to jail. I've wondered at times how that must have felt. Another justifiable reason. And, um, so unfortunate, those ones that were keeping the peace, 
often were violent towards our people. Because they too internalized the negative messages about indigenous people being lazy, drunk, crazy. A lot of Canadians internalize that till today, that we're inferior. So, the last one that would give me justification to complain is removal. You know, I didn't hear about that until, uh, I think, the 80s. Maybe later than that, because my one of my friends, he said, what you up to? And he says, oh, I'm going to look for my brothers and sisters. And I seen him, I don't know, a year or so later, I said, hey, did you ever find your brothers and sisters? I didn't even know the full story, and I didn't ask him at that time. He says, yeah, he says, because he became a social worker, so he learned how to navigate the system. He says, yeah, I got um, a brother and a sister down in the United States, and I have a sister in Montreal. I say, whoa. He says they don't want to come home. Then I found out in the removal, they, um, the children, the babies, ended up all over in Canada and the United States and Western Europe. And I've met 60 scoop survivors. And I really feel for them because they're uprooted and plop down somewhere in that strange culture to them, to us, never knowing who their parents are, their real parents, and knowing they're different by the color of their skin. Some of them were raised in a good way and become professionals, but I could still see sometimes they're hurt in their eyes, the ones I've talked to, that missing of their roots of their family and community. So it's another justifiable reason to complain. So I have about all of those. It's a good reason to be angry, to be afraid, to be depressed. And I was all of those. I, I got addicted to feeling sorry for myself for a while in my life, you know. I'm not proud to say that. I listened to music that would make me sad. I'd drink. I'd do those things as a Medicine of choice, I heard it called once by a survivor. But that medicine wasn't really healing. It was stopping the pain for a while, but it wasn't healing. I think part of the saddest part of this, for me, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, 
is because of children. You know, this term, I heard this term, intergenerational, that this problems become intergenerational. That means passed on from parent to child to grandchild to great-grandchild, you know, and I could see the sense of that. That if we don't break the cycles of how we're thinking and how we're dealing with our emotions, it's better. It's not good to be guided by negative emotions. But to sit down and draw out a map, make a plan of what we're going to do. And have a plan A, B, and C, not just one plan. Then go all out for it together. Create a base of people that think the same that have the same goals and objectives and go out and do it. You know, it was a... When I think about my... my journey, the dark part of my journey, as I described to you, coming from the light, from my parents' house in this little house, that was in the light. There was joy there. There was no fear in that environment. Then when I left there, I started to experience fear. I'm one of those ones in school, you know, that I'm hiding all the time, not wanting to speak up. I remember clearly at times that my breathing is so shallow that I get dizzy because I'm afraid the teacher's going to ask me a question or ask me to write something on the blackboard. I remember that, that fear. After I became an adult, it turned to anger. It's not good living with people that are angry all the time or being with people that are wrapped in that cocoon of anger. It emanates all. You know, I talk to people and I've listened to people and I'd hear statements like, oh, those people in that room were so angry. You could go in there, you can cut the air with a knife. Which proves that this anger is real energy and it goes and permeates the air. I didn't come, you know, and the sad part about this is that we churned on each other, on our reserves in our communities, or wherever we are. Now I see people doing it on Facebook, social media, attacking people. I'll say we must stop that. We must not do that. That's not the indigenous way of living. So I watch, you know, what's going on. I see the impacts. I was talking to my mother once, my elite mother, and I was talking about People have been angry with me in my own community, my relatives, not all my relatives, some of my relatives and other people angry with me, saying hurtful things to me and to my children. And we all go through that. I'm not exclusive to that. Probably everybody in the reserve has gone through something like that. We even fight each other now at 
times. And she told me, oh, son, she's very practical. She says, <laughs> oh, there's some people so mean, son. If you got nobody to bite by 10 a.m. in the morning, they'll bite themselves. <laughs> and she laughed, and I laughed, because I know that's true. And probably at sometimes we're that way, too. You know, and the saving graces of us as a people is our sense of humor. And I was going through the same things, and I talked to my my brother, and I said, you know, jeepers, Brad, I'm trying to help, and I'm trying to do things, you know, and one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, eight steps back. It's just, I was getting tired. He says, Jerry, I want to tell you something. He says, one-third of the people here, I've been watching, he says, one-third of the people here love you and will do whatever with you, will work with you. And one-third of the people here are fighting you with everything they got. And one-third of the people, Jerry, he said, they simply don't care. <laughs> I was not sitting there nodding my head, and I knew that was true. But that's the same in humanity today, I feel. It wasn't exclusive to my community. It's happening all over. We lost that feeling of togetherness, of clan. You know, the, um, our way in Clackman, our way of life. You know, and, uh, where we weren't afraid to say to each other, shut up and paddle, you know. And I think about that, and, um, you know, my cousin telling me, quit being a warrior now, for God's sakes. Be a warrior. Warrior up. Don't lay down and let people step on you. Then the elders telling me, but re be respectful. Don't be like them. Because they're ugly. They're mean. Don't be like them. My father was like that. He was honorable and dignified. Wouldn't stoop to their level. You know, I'd never hear my late father swear or use foul language. Well, once I did, just once. We were shoeing his horses. Got the horse's hoof up on his knee, and he's got the tacks in his mouth, and he's got the horseshoe there, and he's hasping the toenail like it's a big toenail, and he has a big toenail file, and he's scraping it and measuring the hoof and stuff. And the horse leaned on him, and they're heavy, those animals. And he stood up and slapped that horse in the neck and said a four letter word. And pushed the horse, and the horse listened to him. And he looked at me, and he said, sorry, son. You know, he was sorry that he lost control of himself. That's what I model myself after today, to have that respect and that dignity, and not stoop to the level of the violent ones, the ones that are violent, or the ones that are mean, or the ones that are not listening. 
Because uh, the violence towards our people over the years has changed. The oppression. Very beginning, and I think about it. When I first heard it, I couldn't believe it. That there were men planting smallpox blankets. And I was thinking at that time, I said, oh my gosh. They wanted to kill all the men, the women, the children, and the elders. It was total war. I couldn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. What is my elders telling me? Telling me that. You know, so... Even with that... Them, those elders telling me that, I didn't see that hateful anger in their eyes or the tonality of their voice. And I, you know, the reservations, they were surveyed out and there were survey posts around every reservation. Every reservation is lands reserved for Indians, held in trust by the federal government of Canada. And I've seen examples of the of that law of the Indian Act that was uh, put in place in 1876 to take us off the land so they can get to the resources, the farmland, the minerals, etc., etc. I remember my, was with my dad and we're walking up in the mountainside off the reserve. And we come across all these pipes laying on the ground like in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's somewhere actually, it's our mountain. You know, but there's no trails or anything there. And um, I said to my dad, whose are those? He says, oh, BC Hydro. I said, BC Hydro is way over there. What's it doing here? He says, oh, they um, diverted the water from above the reserve for their town site when they're building the power generating station so they can have water. And I looked down at the cleared land on the benches they were dry. And I said, is that why they stopped using those? He says, yes, they didn't have water to water their hay field or their crops. I think I was holding my head at the time, wondering, why didn't you guys fight it? You know, my dad and them knew what it's like to go to jail. My dad got arrested for an alcohol-related offense, and he wasn't even drunk, and it wasn't even his alcohol. There was a law at one time in this country we could not even be in the presence of alcohol. I watched him being arrested that time, handcuffed and put in the police car. And I was angry towards RCMP taken my dad. So our people felt that the first rules of law in this country about us, they're the ones that really felt it. 
I talked to elders that were arrested for potlatching on the West Coast. Going to jail for six months in Ocala. So, you know, my whole point of this is that I must do something, not stew in anger or fear or depression. Refuse to let it own me and control my life. I would tell people, you know, we must get over this anger because the children, when they look in our eyes, it's all they see is anger and they'll think we're angry at them. So let's once and for all deal with this anger towards the residential school and towards our experience. So we can be free. So I can be free. That's what I've done. So I could be free. I remember it. My grandfather, who I barely knew, my mom's, my grandmother's husband. My mom told me this story because before CMHC, our people built their own houses, usually out of logs or small houses or timber. My grandfather and my grandmother had a log house. And one day it burnt down. Nobody got killed, thank goodness. So my grandfather and grandmother built a camp beside the house, set up a tent. And my mom said, soon as the foundation was cool, my grandfather was in there cleaning away the ashes and the debris. And soon as that was done, he... Um, he went and cut trees in the forest and hauled them with his horses to the house site. And people could see this in the community, and he peeled them. Then he, one morning he said, "I'm going to tomorrow morning. I'm going to start building our house." <laughs> and this story just it still brings powerful emotions to me like tears in my eyes and pride because my mom said when my grandfather stepped out of the tent the men from the community were there said we're, we hear you're going to build your house we come to help you that's one of the beautiful stories about shut up and paddle we're going to do it ourselves. We're not going to wait for somebody. We're going to do it ourselves. That's what I want to role model. That's, what I, that's how I want to live. Look for solutions. I, I still complain. <laughs> laugh because I told my wife, um, I've been talking about this podcast now for a while. And I'd be talking about complainers. And one day I said, Jeepers, I have to do something because I'm complaining about the complainers. I'm, I'm becoming a complainer. I have to shut up and paddle. So that's what motivated me to this podcast. You know, part of the big motivation for me for this was... Um, the 
reasons. Two reasons, you know, victims. There are still people that are depressed and afraid and angry today because of what happened at residential schools and the 60s scoop and, uh, you know, in life in general. That's why we have to be careful what we say. Because we don't want to reaffirm their anger, their fear, or depression, get them even more angry, more depressed, or more afraid. Because when that happens, life seems to be hopeless. I was uh, doing a talk on my boss in '96 uh, or something, or somewhere in there. I said, "You go down to the downtown east side and do residential school workshops at the Aboriginal front door." Okay. Packed up my drum, my smudge bowl, and my feather and medicines, and went down to the front door where there's addicted, homeless, indigenous people, as well as other people. Just not all indigenous down there. Set up a circle and ask for a flip chart and talking about residential school in BC, when they started, when they ended, how many children and stuff. I have all these numbers. Done the workshop. I had the sharing circle. I realized then that many of them were more angry, more depressed, more afraid. And I said to myself, I'm not going to do that anymore. If I do talk about it, I'm going to say once and for all, we're going to get rid of this in our, from our body, from our mind, from our spirit. I refuse to reaffirm negative emotions in people. That's why this shut up and paddle has been so important to me and it's taken me a long time to get, to get it where it feels right. It feels right today. I want people to be aware of what they're doing, to know what the impacts of their words or their actions can have on our own people too. I wanted to be an activist and be a destructive activist when I was in my mid-twenties. and We used to meet as um, young men and women and we figured out, let's turn off the lights in Vancouver because the power lines run through our reserves. And I told my dad, hey, we figured out how to turn off the lights in Vancouver. He says, why do you want to do that? You guys think about this. People will die down there from that. Elders, children, babies. He had a big world view, that man. When I hear the term colonial state now, I'll say... You know, we have to add some words to that and say things like, you know, this colonial state is no longer going to impact us, you know, because we're free of it, instead of saying it's still a colonial state. Because when I hear that, I think about the children listening, and maybe it'll stop them from moving forward. Well, these words have been used for many years. If they were effective, we would have all stood up en masse and moved together. But it hasn't done that for us. I think it discourages people. that it's Canada is racist. I've turned it around now and I say Canada is not racist, but Canada has racists. 
and some pretty serious ones too. I call it a racist spectrum disorder. That there are people in Canada and the extreme right that would be happy to see us all die. And it's a spectrum that means that, you know, there's a wide range. And as you move towards the center, there's a lot of people there that simply don't care about us as a people. And you go to the left and there's people there that start to care for us and some of them are our allies and some of them will do things with us and for us. That's a spectrum. So we have to be careful. I know when we were doing blockades, there were some people that didn't join us. And I sort of understand today, years later. Because the elders would go to town and uh, because of what we're doing, the racists would attack them verbally or with microaggression. And they didn't ask for this. Those elders didn't ask for that. And there we were excited young activists. That activism done me good. It made me proud of who I am, proud of my people. But at the same time, I must think of the ones that were again being victimized because we made people angrier. So it's a conundrum. It's what's right, what's wrong. I don't know. I just wanted to just have people consider to think about their actions. One of my friends and one of my teachers said, if you ever are in doubt or wondering you should do something or not, ask yourself this question. If it's going to hurt someone, if the answer is yes, don't do it. If there's an answer is no, go for it. Go all out. So let's all be careful and sincere with our words. Let's use indigenous ways. Let's be respectful. But let's make noise when we're stepped on with a clear plan of when victory is going to be there. Because if we don't do it with a plan, we're just doing this over and over again. It's my observation. Because I was doing it in the 70s. I was activate activist in the 90s. And I've watched people do activism throughout my life. And it hasn't really changed anything. Well, little bits. Now there's land acknowledgments. Now there's recognition. And that's a small part of the process, and I accept that. I'm proud when some young indigenous person gets up and sings the anthem in their language. Or when they walk around, they look dignified, you know, with regalia. Because at the beginning of this relationship with uh, Europeans, we couldn't even wear our regalia. You go to jail for doing ceremony. It's not like that today. I do ceremony every Sunday, and I don't fear going to jail. Even if they said I would, I'd still do the ceremony, though I'd follow those elders that refuse to let it die. That's why I do a ceremony, because I was taught how to do it. The information was passed down to me by elders 
that actually felt the threat of Canada putting him in jail for doing ceremony. So let's put our minds together and see what we can do for the children. Let's paddle together. We paddled together. I've been on canoe journeys, and I oh, I can remember being tired. And when somebody had asked the skipper, "Are we almost there yet, skipper?" and he said, "Shut up and paddle." <laughs> you know? I remember we were paddling once, and we we left late for some reason, and the tide was against us, and we're paddling, and we're getting tired. And I'd look over to the beach, and there's this tree, and I'd say, "Oh, that's my marker. I'll see how far we go past it." So we're paddling, it seems like for a long time, maybe half an hour or so, and I looked and that tree still there. And we all started slowing down, you know, because we're starting to get tired. And the skipper says, hey, you guys keep paddling. We have to go stronger because the tide's going the other way. We're going backwards, <laughs> you know, so shut up and paddle. So we'd start, and then somebody would say, 100 strong ones, and some of we'd all start counting one, two, till we get to 100, and we'd give a good push and you could feel the canoe lift up and move through the water. We'd all shut up and paddle. And we'd move to our destination. So what's our destination? It's a bright future. It's going into the light for our children, our babies. Or they won't have to talk about fear, anger, and depression anymore because of what happened. But be free of it and be paddling constantly. When we face struggle, we get stronger. When we say hello to our problems, we can say goodbye. So let's do that together. Let's paddle. Sometimes we have to shut up and paddle. (laughs) Never give up, be like a lady hummingbird. I'm doing what I can. So let's do that. So I'm glad that I finally found the energy or the feeling to do this podcast. I don't know how many years I've been wanting to do this. I told my crew, I got this podcast, shut up and paddle, I want to do it. But here it is today, so hopefully you get something good out of this and because uh, all my podcasts are to motivate and inspire people to healing and wellness and pride in our culture, our way of life, our identity. So, until next time, I'll see you.